Well, this morning I want to turn to Exodus chapter 14, and do turn with me. I'd like to read the entire chapter, and uh, appreciate the time given me this morning. And so reading from verse 1, if you would open up your Bible, follow with me, and this is what God uh, has said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirot, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pihahirot in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. People of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you you have only to be silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea. Divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them. They stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And he made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, in the morning uh, watched the Lord 
in the pillar of fire, and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into the sea, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Just so far, Lord, do you help us this morning? I do pray that in the preaching of your word, that your spirit would convince us of who you are as the Lord of glory, giving to you that which you are worthy of in honor and praise. Thanks. Our very lives we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I do want to begin this morning, very well-known passage, I think uh, known to most of us and even to the children who did such a good job this morning, didn't they? And uh, glad to see the Sunday school growing. It's really fantastic and we, we thank the Lord uh, for that. But there is a question I want to ask and deal with this morning as we look at this familiar passage. And the question is simply this. I want you to think through uh, what it is that the, your answer would be. To what, extent, to what extent do you think God is involved in the affairs of the world? As we sit here this morning, is God involved at all? Is he involved in, in what's happening in China or England or South Africa or anywhere else? Well, let, you, let me give you some opinions. There are those who maintain that God does not exist. We know that. And therefore, their opinion, their very strong opinion, is that history unfolds haphazardly or randomly or unpredictably. We just see history as an accumulation of random events. Then there are others who acknowledge, well, there may be the existence of God, but if it is true that God exists, his involvement can be likened to someone winding up an old-fashioned clock that still had a spring and gears, and simply throwing that clock out and watching from a distance to see how history will unfold. We see something different here in the book of Exodus. In this passage, we see God revealing the extent and level of his involvement. And in this particular instance, a description of him, what we're told in this passage, God at work. Did you notice that as we read the passage? God at work in the affairs of Israel and Egypt. And so this morning, an analysis of the text 
is going to show us in my first point various aspects of God's involvement. And I want to lift God before you this morning. I know we often sing a song, Behold Your God. I want us to behold God as we seek to understand, as we seek to see what it is that the Spirit of God is revealing about God in His involvement in the affairs of Israel and Egypt. And so my first point this morning, God at work in Israel's deliverance. I intend to summarize, don't have time to do much more than that, in a number of points, the working of God as He delivers Israel from bondage, from the clutches and reach of Pharaoh. I want to begin where we were uh, touching last week, and I want us to consider in the first instance God's strategy, in the working of God. How does He work? We often ask that question. How does God get to work? How is He at work? What are His methods? Well, let's have a look at this passage and see something of God's strategy. Military strategists, and they abound in the world today, would certainly consider God's instruction for them to take a detour would be considered as stupid irresponsible, as foolish. The Israelites uh, under God seem to be taking a route that would be considered to be sheer lunacy. They were already on their way to freedom. They were heading in a direction to get to the promised land within days. And here we find God ordering them through Moses, turn around, go back, and camp between the desert and the sea. The very first verse, the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirot, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, we don't know the exact position. If I had a map here today, I couldn't pinpoint exactly. We don't know the identification of these places. But what we do know, what we do know, is that these Israelites, these many Israelites, were completely trapped. They were vulnerable. They were on the one side uh, uh, surrounded, as it were, by Egypt's frontier and the armies and the chariots and, and, and those that were coming. On the other side, or on that side, they were surrounded by the desert and they were pinned in by the sea. I think in South Africa, we would say they were between a rock and a hard place. So any strategist, any expert in military uh, approach would immediately recognize they were in trouble. They were trapped. But the thing is, that's exactly what God wanted them to think. He wanted the Egyptians to think and to see and, and Pharaoh to realize in his own response that the Egyptians, that the Israelites were trapped. Now my point is this, and I remind you of what I said last week. God's strategy is such that he knows better. God knows what he's doing. God has the bigger picture in view. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is all-wise. And so the whole effort, the, 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 the uh, strategy that he instructs Moses to take was an effort to get the Egyptians to think that the Israelites were stupid and they had no idea what they were doing. The response then would be that Pharaoh would be enticed to press what he thought would be his strategic advantage. 
And we see that in the third verse, for Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. Dear friends, God's strategy, something we can take from this passage today, is such that God always achieves what he sets out to do, even when his approach seems unworkable or not feasible to us. Number two, God's influence. What what God does next in the passage is to eliminate any doubts about the power of God to influence one of the most powerful men in the world. Have a look at verse 4. God says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. The very thing that God intends Pharaoh to do, he doesn't second guess Pharaoh, he influences him. And so God's influence we recognize in this passage on powerful people and on all people is irresistible. Not even Pharaoh can withstand the influencing power of God. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he prepares for war in verse 8, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. This is not an isolated incident of influence in one chapter of the book of the Old Testament in the Bible. I want us to see that. This is a principle. This is the way God operates. This is the way God is involved. Let me take you to the familiar proverb. This is nothing other than what we read in the book of Proverbs in chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it. Wherever he will. That's the God we serve. What I'm holding up before you this morning, behold your God. Have a look thirdly at God's purpose. God has a clear stated purpose that he mentions up front to Moses. Uh, His intention is to show Pharaoh, the Egyptians, to show the world to whom the greatest honor is due. Verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And it's not just stated once. A little bit later, the people panic, the Israelites panic, and they grumble, and Moses needs to correct them, and he reminds them that the Egyptians will be eliminated. In verse 13, the Lord will fight for them. Verse 14, and again, we see the intention. Uh, God tells Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide it, that the people may go. In verse 18, I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And and even us this morning, also us this morning, we need to see the, 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 the ordering of importance as it ought to be in the world. There is a hierarchy that gets upside down and, and turned the wrong way around so often in our thinking and in our practice and even in our faith. It is true. Kings and queens and presidents have thrones 
to rule from. That's true. In the eyes of the world, the rich and the famous have elite status and given recognition. Every human being, every one of us sitting here this morning, made in the image of God, we're in a unique category above the animals. But let me be very clear this morning from this passage, I understand royalty and celebrities and image-bearing people ought not to think of themselves more highly than they ought. Even kings and queens and celebrities are human beings and finite and, and, and limited. Only God is most important. Only God is eternal and infinite. God is most important. And we need to see in this passage that God's purpose, His grand purpose then, and I would extrapolate it to now, in everything is to display His glory. Which leads me to number four, God's power. Moses, uh, we know from a previous passage in chapter 3, had already learned about the greatness of God's power. Remember that occasion when he was confronted uh, by the burning bush, the bush that burned but was not consumed. He learned there that God, at will, when he wants to, when it accomplishes his purposes, God, at will, can suspend the natural laws that he puts in place or has put in place. God does the impossible when he chooses to do so. He is a miracle worker. God can do what no one else can do. And so God does not share your and my limitations. He does not share our inadequacies. He can, when he considers it necessary to accomplish his purposes, to do what no one else can do. And the point is this. With God, the people of Israel could expect the supernatural. Dividing the Red Sea is in keeping with his supernatural ability. We don't need to find excuses or try and explain away the supernatural that the sea was divided. As we read, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. All night made the sea dry land and waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Miraculous. Expected. From God, he is God. Number five. God's justice. Who's Pharaoh? Well, I want to suggest to you that he not only features in this particular event as one who is the king and leader of Egypt, powerful leader, but he also is one who represents those in rebellion to God, those who are defiant uh, toward God. He represents idolatrous Egypt. He is the one who declared in chapter 5 of Exodus chapter 2, when asked by Moses that the Lord would want the people to go out into the desert to worship, his response is, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. In spite of his power, he is unable, he's not able to escape the judgment of God. In his mind, and like those who had gone before him, remember there had been 430 years, uh, generations of slavery. Those leaders, those kings, those pharaohs, 
denying the worthiness of God, imagining themselves to be invincible. We have some people in the world today like that, imagining themselves to be invincible beyond accountability to the God of Israel. But not so. It never can be so. God's justice will be served. You can count on it. You can depend on it. You can be certain of it. At some point, at some time, God's justice will be served. In this instance, we read of it from verse 26. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen, all of the hosts of Pharaoh that followed him in the sea. Not one of them remained. That's a tragic reality of what happened to hundreds, thousands of people. A demonstration, an example to us, a warning to us, God's judgment. Number six, just very briefly, I believe this permeates the whole uh, book, the whole Bible, in fact, I've called it God's grace. You see, remaining true to his word, God had made covenant promises to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in generations before. We see in this chapter that God safely delivers Israel from the hand of the enemy. And he does so to a people who, quite frankly, don't deserve it. Verse 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on the right and the left. I've read this before. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Now, a glimpse. I wish I could have preached much longer. There's so much about God in this passage that we can see. But I want to go back to the question. In the light of holding up God before you, I want to ask again the question, to what extent do you think this God is involved in the affairs of the world? Well, I, I can only answer definitely, affirmingly, affirming. Our text reveals that God is fully involved. God is not standing afar off at a distance. God is not twiddling his thumbs hoping that people are going to make right decisions. God is involved, intimately involved to accomplish every single of his set purposes in the unfolding of redemptive history, beginning to end. This is a clear message confirmed in the text by Moses to the people of Israel, repeated elsewhere in the Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see, open your eyes, behold what God is doing in working, in, in what God is fighting for you. Salvation is of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see, shall you shall never see again. Which leads me to my second point in the sermon this morning. And I've called it God at work in saving sinners. What do we do with, with that which God worked for Israel on that day so many thousands of years ago in application for us today? 
How do we apply this passage? Well, I found theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards. Some of you would be familiar with Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he helped me understand, and this is his comment. I want to quote him and provide some thinking, some thoughts in your mind. He says, hell, as opposed to heaven, hell, hell was as much, nay, more engaged in that affair than Egypt was. The pride and cruelty of Satan, that old serpent, was more concerned in it than Pharaoh. Okay, I want you to try and think us through that comment. You see, making this comment, Jonathan Edwards makes it because he understood that God had given a preview of human history when he spoke those words in Genesis chapter 3 to Satan in the Garden of Eden. Now, what is the preview? Let me give it to you. God's saying in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what that tells us is that not everything you see is everything you need to see. We need to understand and see that behind the human realm is the conflict between Satan and the seed of the woman, which is Christ. This conflict also exists between Satan's seed, those in the kingdom of darkness, and the seed of the people of Christ, those in the kingdom of light. Another author by the name of Roger Ellsworth makes a comment, and let me read it. He says, In the light of this, we can say that the Egyptians' enslavement of the people of Israel was nothing less than Satan launching an all-out assault on the people and promises of God. This wasn't just Pharaoh who happened to have an ego that was bigger than he could handle. It was Satan. It was his way of keeping the people of Israel out of the land of Canaan, the land to which the Messiah was to come. And so, can you see this morning that God's triumph over Pharaoh and his army was nothing less than a triumph over an effort by Satan and his evil hosts? There's more to see than what you see. Furthermore, and this is the important part for us as we go forward, it was a preview of an even greater triumph, the one that the Lord Jesus achieved when he died on the cross. When, as Paul tells us, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So let me... Put some of a parallel together here. Going back to the people of Israel, they viewed their situation as hopeless. They were doomed. They were done. They were trapped. They were caught in what appeared to be an inescapable vice. And I've said it, the Red Sea and Pharaoh and the armies behind them. But God's working. God's intervention. God's wisdom. God's power made a way of escape. 
And so the situation at the cross must have appeared equally hopeless to the disciples of Jesus. They're watching him being crucified, being humiliated. Satan and his crew, they probably were jumping up and down with delight, thinking it was their victory. To them, a crucified Messiah was a failed Messiah. But the same God, with the same wisdom and the same power that was at work at the Red Sea, was at work at the cross. God's wisdom, God's power, achieving and opening a way of eternal salvation for those who believe. Do do you see how the Bible comes together? (laughs) Satan could never have guessed the genius of the cross. The death Jesus died did not, did not single his, signal his defeat as Satan supposed. It was a special kind of death, a death in which Jesus received the wrath of God instead of or in the place of sinners. And in receiving that wrath, the Lord Jesus himself freed those who believe from receiving the wrath and judgment of God and freeing them from Satan's dominion. And, and, and a, a last comment of this point, and then I'll just have a third point of application. Uh, Roger Ellsworth again, he says, We might say the Lord Jesus inflicted a bruise on Satan's head at the Red Sea, but crushed his head on the cross. I like that statement. Well, the application. Application for this passage is difficult. And let me give you reasons why. You see, on the one side, there is a great danger of taking a passage like this and misleading people by spiritualizing a particular event. Taking a passage like this, crossing the Red Sea, showing something of the power and the deliverance of God, and then telling people that God will always remove your hardship. That's not the intention of the passage. I can't tell you this morning that God is going to remove the particular mountain that you're standing before or I'm standing before tomorrow or next week or the following week. The passage doesn't address that. The passage doesn't address the fact that some would preach this passage delivering you at any time in the course of your life when you're between a rock and a hard place. Sometimes God leaves us in the midst of our difficulties. On the other side, there's another danger of neglecting to preach passages like this uh, uh, because they tell of spectacular events that we're not sure how to understand. Well, this morning I want to do something else. I believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. And so what can we learn? What are some of the relevant points of application? I have made three that I'm going to give to you in closing. Number one. Dear friends, I want you to look and see today the salvation of the Lord. Personally, your life, your standing, your condition, your spiritual condition before God. You see, Moses telling the people of Israel, verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today, was realized before their eyes. God did it. They didn't do it. God did what they could not do. God didn't say to them, well, you know, some of you, if you want to follow me, you can choose to swim over the Red Sea, and others, if you want to stay. No. God achieved salvation. And so salvation belongs to the Lord. Similarly, when we move to the accomplishment of Jesus at the cross, 
salvation for sinners was accomplished. Redemption was accomplished by God. Also at conversion, we see it is God who makes alive sinners in Christ Jesus. God gives to spiritual life in being born again. God did and God does for us sinners what we cannot do for ourselves. But what is your responsibility? As you sit here this morning, as I stand preaching to you, we need to look and see the salvation of the Lord. We need to look to Jesus, who was crucified on the cross, who was buried and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. We need to look and see that while we were yet sinners, defiant, rebels, Christ died for us. Believe the provision He's made. Receive the benefits. Praying that the Spirit of God would open your eyes and, and your ears to see one who knows and one who comes to God saying, as the old hymn writer put it, Lord, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Number two. I'm sorry to say this in some senses this morning, but you can expect continued attacks from the devil. This week, perhaps. Until Jesus comes again, and what we're told in Revelation 20 about Satan, and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Until that happens, dear friends, you and I and every believer can expect and experience attacks from the evil one. But, well, before I get to the but, let me say that this is something Jesus warned Peter about in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Let's not take lightly the warnings in Scripture that Satan masquerades as a roaring lion and, some, and sometimes deceives many people when he pretends to be an angel of light. We know that there are many wolves in sheep's clothing. You can expect attack and assault and, and, and difficulty from those in the kingdom of darkness. But, this is the but, just like Peter, you can be sure of the effective prayers of Jesus. Peter? I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And so, and so the point, the road to the celestial city, that's heaven, the road to the New Jerusalem, the road to the celestial city is going to be tough. It's not going to be easy. Your faith will be challenged. The assault from Satan and even others will inevitably, inevitably come in those many difficult situations of life. But know that God will safely deliver you into that city where ultimately there will be no more tears, no more death, no more crying, no more pain anymore, where all things will be made new. We have hope. And then thirdly, and I'll close with this, I hope you've seen it this morning that the greatest honor is due to God. We live in a world where there is, I would almost want to say, a growing opposition to God. 
there is not widespread acknowledgement of people to submit and to honor and to respect and to give God glory. I just mentioned some categories over here. In many people's minds, uh, God is being domesticated. In other words, people make an attempt to make God like themselves. That's sacrilege. In other instances, we read of God being blasphemed. Regularly, as we're told in Romans chapter 1, men and women exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Have you seen that? Even in the church, people manipulating and distorting and corrupting and misrepresenting the truth that God has revealed. Many instances, God has been dishonored. In other instances, He's been discarded. Some instances, denied. The name of Jesus sadly, is commonly used and accepted as a swear word. Dear friends, God is patient as we see things, as we sit here today. But not always will He continue to be patient. There will come a day when just as Pharaoh and Egypt experienced the judgment of God, and so judgment and wrath will fall upon those who remain defiant. And God will always, as He says, through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 48, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will not share His glory with another. There will be that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We have the privilege to start doing that. We are doing it. We continue to do it until He comes. Let us give at Central Baptist Church the glory that God is worthy of, that which is due His name. And Lord, I pray to that end, we stand in need as those apart from Your grace who are helpless and hopeless. But thank You this morning that salvation is indeed from Your hand. Thank You for what You've achieved in redemption, thank you for what you're applying by your spirit, the evidence even before us this morning of men and women, young and old, even children coming as those who have experienced the reality of being made alive in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, as we walk this difficult road, uh, experiencing, as it were, assault after assault, thank you that you are praying for us, that you will carry us through, that you will hold us, even as your Father holds us to the very end into that beautiful city of God. Amen.